Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mountain Meister. This is Ben. Hey, guys, it's Russell. Today on the show, we welcome Mike Pig. Mike was a pioneer triathlete that dominated the sport through much of the 80s and 90s. And known specifically for the Olympic distance and off-road triathlons, Mike has competed in over 150 races and won almost half of them. Mike still competes but now has another job and a family that takes up more of his time. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Mike, I know you've been out of the sport for about 12 years now is what you were saying. But back in your day, like Ben said, you were winning tons and tons of races. How frustrated were all the other competitors? <laughs> I don't think it's a frustration amongst competitors. I think most good competitors uh, like an adversary. And uh, one thing that was very interesting about our sport is, granted, we were going for blood on weekends and racing for five or $10,000. But during the week, we would train together and help each other improve. And so I don't think people were frustrated. They just saw it as a challenge as I saw it as a challenge as I climbed my way to the top. That sounds like an interesting dynamic to be competing against the people that you're practicing with during the week. Um, it was, I call it a traveling circus, especially <laughs> as it evolved. You know, when I first started back in 1985, I was just a young kid trying to get – not even knowing I was going to get on the circuit. I just wanted to qualify for Ironman and do that one time and then figure out what I want to do for my college career and later career. And uh, one thing led to another, and I, I did well in some races and just kind of kept climbing the ladder, picked up some sponsorship, kept climbing the ladder. And, and you know, two years later, I'm starting to win races with the top names and uh, got hooked into a sport for 17 years as a professional triathlete. Yeah, well, I... You have such an interesting background where, like you said, you didn't really know if you wanted to go to college or you'd do this, but you decided to go and, and start some triathlons. And this was back in the early 80s. That's correct. I, I was two years at a JC trying to be an engineer because I thought they made a lot of money. It was basically <laughs> my background. And I saw a guy, the grandfather of triathlons, I say, Dave Scott, you know, who's won Ironman six times and a big part of Ironman, Hawaii Ironman. And he just inspired me just seeing what he was doing, the physical challenge of doing Hawaii Ironman and how physically fit Dave Scott looked. And I go, oh, I want to be like that. I want to be that endurance muscular machine. And he basically looked like a greyhound and horse all in one. And it just inspired me to say, I'm going to give it a try, drop everything, school, everything, and just train for this and see where it takes me. How many people were actually competing in Ironmans back then? It was before the prize money day um, back in 1985. There's probably a thousand people uh, getting into the race, and I don't think I think at that time they weren't shying anyone away. You didn't have to qualify, hmm. so it was just beginning to get on the radar and beginning to hit the world in a small way of something interesting. Yeah, well, so at this point you're starting to look like a greyhound. At what point do you say I'm going to take this and do it full time and? I mean, you're at such an early stage of triathlons. Did you know that you would eventually be able to make a career out of it? 
I don't know. I guess I look at Mother Nature as pretty kind, and they usually um, introduce you to life steps at a time. Mm-hmm. And so my first step was having a goal of doing Hawaii Ironman. And uh, I think I qualified in New Zealand in March, and then I did race Hawaii in October, and I think I got seventh place all one year. So that was a good indicator that had something going on. Mm-hmm. And so I continued on another year. And from that seventh place Ironman, someone called me up and said, hey, would you like to be part of our triathlon team? And we'll give you this amount of money and equipment. And I said, sure. And then started placing races where I'd bring $300 home or $500 home and going, man, I love this lifestyle. I was going from each, each race that made money would pay for my next plane ticket. So I was just on the verge of, hey, let's do this or let's not do this, you know. And then in 1987, the sponsorship picked up and prize money picked up thanks to the Bud Light series throughout the United States. And it gave me a great avenue to uh, jump in with the rest of the pros that already been in the sport. Yeah, and like you said, you were working as a full-time athlete. This is what you did for work. I don't even know how many hours you were spending, but I had read somewhere that you were riding your bike at least 225 miles per week, running 30 to 50 miles per week, and also swimming anywhere from 15,000 to 25,000 yards in the pool. And I mean, my biggest question, which maybe this isn't everyone else's question, is this is all kind of idle time. I'm sure that you're very focused and you're you're pushing yourself but what are you thinking about there were no podcasts back then really so did you listen to music were you just really really focused what were you thinking about well um for the record i don't listen to music when i train I, i like to have my eyes and ears um in my environment and aware of what's going on and so once a month, I'll put a head, headphones on and listen to music just mm-hmm. on my easy day just to experience something different. Mm-hmm. But when I'm on a 100-mile bike ride, I'm just happy to look at my speedometer and see what pay, pace I'm holding or how I'm climbing that hill or how I can buck that headwind and be a more efficient athlete. That's what kept me entertained and just also the how to stay on top of your two wheels. When you're running, it's just nice to, uh, once again, be involved in your environment so you don't twist your ankles or how you can be a more efficient runner depending on how your foot strikes or just enjoy the, be- the beauty of being in the woods. Wow. So uh, just for our listeners, we did have an interview with Kate Snow. So if you're interested in looking at uh, some of the details of the swim, bike, and run, check out Kate Snow's interview. Mike, something that we didn't talk to Kate about, which I was curious, was the transitions between each sport. This may be a, a silly question, but do you practice putting on different shoes during your practice? I definitely would go through the routine of having faster transitions mm-hmm. um, and just not rely on the race to figure it out. Uh, one, th- one thing people forget is when they jump out of the water, they're usually wet, mm-hmm. and that changes the whole dynamics of a transition. The other thing that was hit home is that transitions are free time. And it takes no energy to have a great transition. It just takes practice. And you can save yourself anywhere from 15 seconds to a minute, depending on how good or bad you are. So I did practice a lot. I'd be next to a pool with my bike. I totally customized my bike shoes and my running shoes. So they perform as they're supposed to perform when you're in that event. But also they can let your feet get in and out as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. So. Back in the day, uh, this was 1985, and then you stopped competing 12 years ago. Was there anything that changed over that time period for triathlons? Uh, The sport was always evolving. 
you know, the biggest change I think it came through was drafting. The body that TriFed was trying to get our sport into the Olympics, and they were trying to make it clean. So, because when you have it on TV, you don't want to have a lot of controversy. And the drafting issue can bring a lot of controversy to a race. And also, when you come to the Olympics, it puts everyone's A game on, and you have 50 great athletes from all over the world. It's pretty hard to separate uh, people during the swim, bike, and run. And um, pretty soon, you're just a big old cluster, and you have a drafting issue, and, and it kind of takes the biking aspect out of triathlons. So I think uh, the biggest change for me was um, was drafting and allowing it in the Olympics. So it, it sounds like people find themselves in, the, at least this is the opinion of the people competing, they find themselves in a drafting position are there athletes out there who are ever really purposefully going for that drafting position, or is it more, you know, poor coincidence that they find themselves there? You mean looking for the sweet spot? Exactly, yeah. Um, you want to go as fast as possible, and you want to be within the rules. So in answering that, there are people looking for that position. I mean, granted, I, I like to have free air and have everyone else have free out there and see who can be the strongest cyclist out there. There are rules set up as you're supposed to be a person in front and you're supposed to be 10 meters back and off to the right. Okay. And so it was kind of clean to keep everyone out of trouble. You know, just like the rest of the world, uh, there's people that try to live by the rules and there's people that push their rules to the edge. And it's a competitive sport and that's part of the game. Yeah. And like you said, they needed to make this slight adjustment for the Olympics. When the Olympics actually started for triathlons, or, or when triathlons got into the Olympics, was that something that then became your focus, was to get into the Olympics? It was a focus, but then they changed the rules, and my silver bullet was the bike. Hmm. In a 25-mile bike ride, I could put a minute and a half to two minutes on most of the field. Wow. And so the sport totally changed. It created two different sports um, when you allow drafting. And now... You had to be good at all three to be a contender. Now you only had to be good at two, really, and that was swimming and, and uh, running. Because the drafting you know, saves you 5 to 10% of your energy and allows for a good run. And once you jump off the bike, the bike's just a warm-up for you. Hmm. Wow. But you push, you push hard on your pedals and then have to run a 10K, then it's a different game. Hmm. Did that turn you off to the sport? It just made me go in a different direction. Uh, also, the control of the federation, you know, the, the rules are being brought up and the regulation is being brought up and put on to the pros who were free spirits and had their own sponsorships well before TriFed ever showed up, or not TriFed, but the International Triathlon Union kind of changed too and, and it, made, it made it more interesting trying to get prize money. Hmm. So, uh, you know, let's take this a step back. I really liked it in 1985, 86, 87, 88. 89 when the union was starting to come into place the international union one thing that was cool about our sport is we towed up with the amateurs so i could be standing next to a, a person that's 50 pounds overweight and he's lining up next to me and we all go off together whether you have 200 people on the line to a thousand people on the line and as the sport evolved they had to create more regulations because it was getting too crazy too crowded but those were the days when it was fun to go against the amateurs, and they really enjoyed it too because we were benchmarks. Hey, I was within 30 minutes of Mike Pig or, mm-hmm. or Dave Scott or Scott Molina, and um, it was an exciting time, and it made it more personable. You know, say hi to people and ask them how they did their race. It doesn't matter who they were or what level they were, and it was fun back then. Interesting. I mean, I guess at some point it has to be more regulated, right? But if you 
look back on that time, how did you face the fact that the sport was changing? And how did like what steps did you take after you found out, you know, this this other side maybe isn't for me? I I think your your athlete mentality, you get what's put before you and you make the best of it. Whether you're in a race in a rainstorm or a windstorm or a heat wave, you make the best of it. They change the rules. You just got to make the best of it. So ITU's come along and all these people, are, they're regulating it. So I just started picking the races that had a lot of prize money and no ITU and kept it a non-drafting race. That's where I was going to make my most money and I had my most fun. Yeah, you mentioned prize money too. And I mean, that's got to be more than half of the battle when you're trying to make this your career. You maybe have some sponsors too. How many triathletes actually make a living off of this and can just be funded off of prize money and sponsorships? Well, I can only answer back before, um, mm. gosh, around 2000. And it had to be less than 100 mm. boys and girls that were, could call it a career and making a living. I mean, there was people that would sleep in the airport the night before the race. Uh, I was doing that myself. Mm. I slept in my, a car once in Detroit waiting for the USTS triathlon the next day. And Detroit was such a scary place. I had to drive over to Canada and sleep in over some over parking lot in a shopping center over there. That's the only place I felt safe. And then next up, get up and go race, you know. Oh, my God. But, but things got better after a while. I didn't have to do that all the time. And, and you got a name for yourself. And you just got started treating like a professional who took it serious and flown to races and put up in hotels. And you helped out the race directors by doing interviews and, and shaking hands and doing the cool things that pros should do. Those aren't exactly ideal conditions uh, for your pre-race sleeping in. Yeah, but you're 22 years old. You're climbing the ladder. And, and uh, like I said, you, you do what it takes what it for takes. what you're given. Yeah. We want to also talk about something that you ran into uh, in your career. And those were digestive stomach issues. And mainly on the longer races, you were a guru with the Olympic length. Um, but once you started doing the longer ones, you ran into stomach issues. Was this completely biological I guess or was this something that was almost in your control um so I went you know I climbed the ladder just to kind of give you a little bit of story to mm -hmm. this I climbed the ladder from 1985 to 1988 in 1988 I won 15 races out of 20 and I was second in three of those and so I just had a phenomenal year and I was 1989 training everything setting up just like the next year and I go to Texas to a, a wind tunnel just to check out some aerodynamics on my bike with Steve Head, H-E-D, who I don't know if he's still making the wheel or not, but he was at the time. So after that test, we went and had a hamburger somewhere in Texas. And then I jumped on the plane that night and heading to the Virgin Islands for the uh, season opener. And my stomach started gurgling, and so I picked up something in Texas. And uh, I usually go to the Virgin Islands two weeks for the race because, you know, it was a 90-degree race. And I come from Humboldt County, which is a 65-degree weather town. And so I needed those two weeks to have my body adapt to the heat. And I just dealt with bad diarrhea that whole week and uh, didn't have my normal race. I won the race the year before. This time I got second to Mark Allen. Uh, so I still had some fire in there, but um, definitely not the same engine as 1988. And basically picked up a bacteria that changed the constitution of my stomach and uh, how I broke down foods. And went on a huge learning experience for all nine, 1989, how to deal with your main part of your engine, your digestive system, because it helps you recover. It helps you get through races. It helps you with everything. It's your whole body. Um, how to be a professional athlete and have these major problems. It was so bad that 
I was planning my five to seven mile runs with how many porta potties were every mile, you know? Oh, wow. oh my gosh. It was bad. But it, it, again, like I said earlier, and what sport has taught me is you're, you're given a deck of cards and you learn how to play with them. And so it taught me a lot about nutrition. It taught hmm. me a lot about how to learn about my body and how to listen to it better. And so there was a lot of um, information that I, I gained by that experience. Yeah, that's got to be really tough. And I mean, just having that in your brain takes away your focus quite a bit, I'm ah, sure. Yeah. I mean, talk about optimistic, though, what you just said. I mean, you're not making any excuses. Yeah, it, I don't know what to say there, but it is what it is, and, and you got to make the best. I knew I loved the sport. I mean, it got so bad, I, you know, I cried a couple of times just because mm-hmm. I just could not perform the way I wanted to perform. Ben was telling me this, uh, this story the other day. Ben decided to run this 5K. He says he gets within a tenth of a mile from the finish, and he just doesn't know what to do. He just can't push himself anymore. Well, hold on, Russell. You make it sound like I can only do a 5K. First of all, I was really, really pushing myself. I was going about as hard as I could. It just so happened that in the last tenth of a mile, I just start dry heaving and feeling like I'm going to throw up, and I wanted to just finish that last tenth of a mile, but I couldn't, I mean, I guess... I don't think I could have pushed myself any further unless there's some sort of unknown level that I have. I think that's where you're going with this. Go ahead, Russell. Sorry. Anyways, yeah, what I was what I was saying is the question for you is when you're at the end of an Ironman, your career is basically on the line. You got someone 100 yards behind you. What does your body feel like? And do you just push through? And how do you even push through when yeah. your body just feels so terrible? Big, big question. First of all, I just want to come out saying that there's only 100%. You know, everyone talks about 110%, 101%, 105%, whatever. There's only 100% effort that you can give at a certain pace, at a certain distance. And so back to your little drive ease, I mean, that's where your body's prepared for right now. you got three months of training to do a 5K race, and you've maxed out. So I don't know if mentally you need to push your drive heaves or not. You might be at that 100% for Hmm. where you're at in your place and time and physical being. In Ironman, I've trained my body to be there, and, and Ironman is going to give you things that you've never experienced before because you've never gone that hard before. And so for me, it was just talking to my muscles so they wouldn't cramp up on me, whether it was your um, your biceps because you've been run- out there for eight hours and getting low on salt or your um, quads because you've been pounding them for the last six hours. And I mean, my what was going on in my head, I just started talking to and going ooh ow ooh ow ooh ow where you take a Polly newbie Fraser who's won it six or seven times and she's taking ibuprofen to get through it you know and we all have our tricks how to deal with it um, we're all very driven people and so you're going to give it a hundred percent and uh, it's just coping and even today in my morning run I got a, a knee that's not functioning right mm-hmm. right now the muscles aren't firing the way they're supposed to and I'm out there trying to cope with it to get through my six mile run that I wanted to do hmm. and so you just you just deal you just deal with it that's gotta be tough man. some people might take it to 100% some people might only take it to 90 we will never know that answer if they're at 90 or 100 but I feel pretty confident I hit 100 a, a few times 1988 was one of them has science proven that you can just it's half psychological that your muscles won't cramp up or is that, I mean, you sound like the muscle whisperer right now. <laughs> it just, I don't know if that even seems possible. It's getting to know your body. It's getting mm. to know, you know, I can be in the pool doing 5,000 yards and my foot wants to cramp up. It didn't necessarily do it when I was a pro, but now as I'm getting older, um, my foot wants to cramp up. So I just stretch it out as I'm doing my freestyle kick and try to get through it until it settles down. 
And so you are a muscle whisperer or whatever you want to call it, but it's basically getting in tune with your body. And that's by listening to it for 40 years, you know, hmm. every workout. And every time you come back and train in January to get ready for your 5K run, you're going to learn a little bit more about yourself, mm-hmm. how much you can do and can't do. And that's what is so exciting about the sport is it gives you an opportunity and the people around you and your athletes and the pros to learn what 100% is about. I've had three three sprints in my life where everything goes quiet in the last last 200 yards because mm-hmm. you are at 100. percent And so those athletes around you and the, and the fire and desire to want to win or beat the next guy to you, well, even if you're going for second place, I'm going to push just as hard. It's just being those experiences, and it just gives you something to remember by the most memorable races. Wow, yeah, that's so cool, Mike. We do want to fast forward a little bit though to now the present. Uh, you were telling us that you had twin daughters and then also a son. Yeah, it doesn't seem like just, you know, pick up the sport, have a good time. I mean, you were telling us that she's running five-minute miles or she was running five-minute miles. Yeah, my daughter's really taken on to running. And I think she's got the athletic gene and the fire from her dad. <laughs> Sounds like <laughs> and, it. And uh, in seventh grade and eighth grade, she ran a five-minute mile and, she, and she's running a 10.42 mile. Wow. But then as as life goes on, she starts turning into a girl and then a high school girl and then working her way to being a woman. And now she's currently running about 11.18 for that same two mile. Hmm. So as a coach and observer, it's uh, challenging on her dad to uh, be patient for her body to catch up and see if we can get back to those times as, as seventh grade. So right now the main goal as a coach is, hey, keep it so your kid's having fun. And that's always been my model. And that's the thing that something triathlons has taught me is keep things fun. I do your homework, but keep it fun. And I would imagine the value of playing the cards that you're dealt is something that's pretty applicable there too. Yeah, I'm learning. You know, I'm, I have to say I'm, we're finishing up with our track season right now. And we're at the, some of these championships races before the state. Hmm. And I got really frustrated last race because my kid's not dropping time. And it's not her fault. It's not my fault. It's just the cards that she's given right now. Mm-hmm. So then you stay, step back and say, okay, let's look at the big picture. You want to keep it fun so this kid enjoys running for the, her, the rest of her life. And hopefully she can get a college scholarship at if we can get back down to those times she was doing in seventh grade. So it's been a great learning experience for her dad. And my daughter's just learning about her body and how it works. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning how to coach from the side because I've been an athlete that's just been listening to himself since the age of 10 and granted you have a lot of great coaches around you that point you in the right direction but ultimately you have to get good at listening to your body and what it can and can't do so we probably have a bunch of parents uh, as listeners and i'm sure their kids are starting to get that age where they're getting a little more competitive would you have any tips for how to keep some of these sports fun well the first tip i want to say is if it doesn't come from the heart it's never going to happen so it's got to be her her dream, and I'm just a facilitator, so I'm very cautious on what I ask her to do, and I'll make sure it's in her game plans, you know. So if she's hungry to chase track for the next four years, that's great. I'll help you. If you want to quit the sport altogether and play piano, that's great. It's, it's got to come from the heart. So that's the first lesson I want to say. Hmm. And as far as keeping it fun, um, that's just you being an observer. Um, right now, my daughter's training with a 46-year-old woman, and they're about the same pace, and they love to talk. Mm. And so they're getting these great seven, eight, nine-mile runs in there, and they're not even experiencing the pain of running because they enjoy each other's company 
Meanwhile, they're punching out 630 and 640 pace in their aerobic mm. runs, you know. Mm. So training with people is, is a great way of keeping it fun. And I learned that in elementary. The more kids I had come out from my practice, the more fun everyone had. And so I create these little pods where everyone has similar capabilities. You know, this group might be a nine-minute group. This group might be an eight-minute group. And they could run together and challenge each other, motivate each other uh, naturally. And uh, so that's where I get some of my fun tactics. Great idea. I like that. Yeah, surrounding yourself with that competition. Makes sense. you got to keep it at your level or even a little above your level. Exactly. Makes sense. It's really challenging in high school right now because my daughter, there's no girls that can run with her on the team. Hmm. And and the boys are just a notch better than her, so there's no she doesn't have any boys that she connects with that she can run with. And to help her become a great runner, it's nice to have that companion that's a little bit better than you or just as good as you. Mm-hmm. And then you, it's easier to work your way to the top that way. Absolutely. Like myself, I went to Boulder, Colorado, so I could train with people like Mark Allen and Scott Molina. You know, those, those are the pioneers of triathlon. And Dave Scott was out there, and Scott Tinley. Um, just being around those people, Kenny Souza, who was a dual, one of the best dual athletes in the world. Um, put yourself around them, and you just learn through them. To kind of wrap up this conversation, this is something that uh, some of our athletes face, and this is the transition from going from something like a triathlon as your full time job to you know the real world or the real world in quotes. How have you been able to adjust to that transition? Uh, I like how you use that term, the real world, <laughs> because I was in a fantasy world as a professional triathlete, a great fantasy world, not a make-believe, but um, gosh, you just got to focus on your body, eat, sleep, and get massages, and, and try to do your best, <laughs> and it was a fantasy world, and see the world, and then you step back, and I jumped into real estate, and I remember the first day I sat in an office with four walls around me. And as I was saying earlier to you guys, I just thank God I have a window where I can see some blue <laughs> sky and green trees to keep my sanity. But uh, you know, that was a transition. I, I didn't really see myself as a trying to make money as a professional coach. I wanted to try some other things out in the world, but never forget my uh, past too. It was hard. The hardest thing about the whole thing is that when you are a professional athlete, people look up to you and come up and say hi, and I love that. I love talking to people and sharing experiences and uh, just meeting people and, and learning from each other. But when you come into the business, then you get to deal with all kinds of people, and they're not there to do a race and have a great time. They're, they're there to buy or sell a house and at what cost, you know, and uh, whatever cost. And so that was probably the hardest thing, how to learn dealing with all kinds of people. Hmm. Interesting. So do you ever meet someone and they kind of look at you funny and then they know exactly who, oh, you're Mike Pig? Yeah, I get to deal with that all the time. <laughs> and it's a, it's a brain drain because then I think I'm supposed to know them too. <laughs> so I rack my brain, okay, do I know this person or not? And that's the hardest part about whole, all that. But I love meeting people. We're so happy that you came on today. Uh, we've learned a ton. For our listeners out there, you can find all the different things that we talked about on Mike's Meister profile and check that out. And thank you so much for coming on the show, Mike. Oh, I had a great time. Thanks for having me. 
Meister fans, hope you enjoyed that episode with Mike Pig. Must have been really neat to see the sport of triathlons grow as his career did. Russell is still on his camping trip doing his best Mountain Meister impression, Russell Meister. Just me today. If you're interested in seeing what's up with either of us, you can follow us on Instagram at Mountain Meister, spelled out. We're also on Twitter. We post some fun stuff on there. Sometimes even when we record the interview, we tell our followers on social media and give you a chance to ask questions that you'd like to to our specific Mountain Meister that day. So if you're not following us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you're doing something wrong. Join us next time on Mountain Meister when we have Jackie Peso on the show. Jackie was a very competitive mogul skier and then for some reason beyond my comprehension, she left the sport. Don't understand why, but now she is a professional big mountain freestyle skier and one of the best. She's known for going bigger than all of her competitors, so I guess it might have been a good choice. Tune in then. <laughs>